This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media businesses matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And this week, I'm lacking Alex. But I do have in studio a guest, A.J. Christian, a assistant professor of communication studies at Northwestern University. A.J. also leads OTV, which is a research project and platform for intersectional television. And this week, we have A.J. in studio to talk about his new book, which is called Open TV, which is very much connected to that project and platform. But before we do anything else, welcome, A.J. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. Can you tell us more about First Open TV as a concept that is the center of your book? Absolutely. So Open TV arose after many years of interviewing people who produced their own web series for internet distribution, almost all on YouTube, though sometimes on Vimeo, sometimes on Funny or Die, College Humor. The platform doesn't so much matter. The idea that I eventually came to was that these creators were making their own shows because they couldn't get meetings in Hollywood. They wanted to make TV, but they didn't have access to the primary funders and buyers of television, so they decided to make TV on their own and put it online. I call this the open TV market because historically you had to go through the gatekeepers to make TV, with some exceptions like public access and you know local television and things like this. But by and large, especially for scripted TV, comedies and dramas, which is mostly what the book looks at, people were circumventing development executives and going through the open distribution platform of the internet in order to get their shows out there. I kind of describe it as almost like piloting your own show. You know, the network's not going to give you a pilot order, so you make a short form series. Most of them ended up being 45 minutes to 60 minutes of content, working out to a kind of pilot. So so you could get a bit of an audience, show your talent in writing or directing or acting or cinematography, and hopefully use that to gain some entry or access to the business, or in limited cases, your own following, where you actually had your own audience and you were able to make money completely on your own, right? Like, So this is a different kind of TV market, um, one that has, over the while I was reporting in the book, slowly and on the margins became incorporated into the TV business by like networks picking up some of those shows. Though I will say most of the book, the series in the book remained on the kind of open TV market where they were sometimes had good fan bases but really weren't able to make that much money. So the arrival of internet distribution of video is the key thing that creates the opportunity of open TV. Yes, and there has always been some, or for a long time, there's been video on the internet. Um, It's interesting, when you go back to the trays of the 1990s, there are some stories in variety of, like, web series that are online, but they're mostly text-based with, like, 45-second video (laughs) because, you know, streaming wasn't really a thing. People had dial-up. Like, loading a 45-second video would take forever. But, like, NBC picked up a web series in, like, 1996 um, that was, like, a series of diaries of these young people in a house that had, like, occasional video segments and, like, photo. And it it was very strange to me, but absolutely, like, YouTube and streaming video, Adobe Flash, broadband, of course, Um, really accelerated people making, like, TV shows on the internet because then it, like, looked like TV. Yeah, it's so amazing, this history that's not that long ago, but it's already the point that on a regular basis, you know, I have to to bring out the the gray-haired professor and, like, explain to my students, you know, like, well, yes, there was the internet in 2005 and, and there was some video, but, like, my recollection of the experience, it was so bad. 
it would stream so slowly, it would be very pixelated, and and almost always it would crash. It's hard, I think, in my own work even, like, I've tended toward looking at, like, 2010 as sort of this point Mm -hmm. where, at least in the U.S., um, that's the moment that the more industrial video really takes off. And so I think... Given, let's say, YouTube, what, 2006 and the buyout by Google in 07, like at that Around time then, was yeah. sort of when video started becoming more popularly aware. It's always hard to know where one fits relative to early adopters, too. It is, yeah, but I think, you know, I think about late 2005, I believe, was Andy Samberg's Lazy Sunday. Yeah, that's another. That's- Key moments on that history. On that right? history. Like, why is that? It's why, immortalized. Yeah, why is that immortalized <laughs> indeed? It was like an early viral video. Yeah. I also remember, like, people were bootlegging really early. Mm-hmm. So I think there were bootlegs of R. Kelly's Trapped in the Closet, maybe circulating wow. around that time. Yeah. That was kind of like a web series. Like, people broke it up, you know, mm-hmm. into sections and watched it. But yeah, 2006 for me was a critical moment because of Lonely Girl 15. Uh-huh which was started out as a vlog and this like young mm-hmm. teen girl who's like, my parents are so religious, I can't leave the house, so I'm going to vlog on my computer. You know, the production team put these little Easter eggs to suggest that the show was more than just a vlog, and then it became a big kind of scandal mm-hmm. that this show that was supposed to be about this real teen girl was actually like a scripted project that was like trying to sell to Hollywood. And that was for me like when I was like, oh, this online video thing is actually... TV kind of, mm-hmm. or it's like a way of storytelling in episodic form. Mm-hmm. Um, when before it was, I think most people were viewing it just as like, upload your personal videos, like your vacation stuff, or like maybe you might share your thoughts on something. And it was very personally driven. Mm-hmm. And then 2006 was like, okay, people started to say, maybe I could do this for a profit motive, potentially. Um, 2007 is when Felicia Day uploaded The Guild, Uh, to YouTube, and that was a show about gamers Mm -hmm. that she had allegedly pitched to networks, and they all said, no thanks, gamers don't watch TV, (laughs) (laughs) which is probably true, actually. Like, I I sometimes judge network executives for not really thinking too far ahead, but maybe gamers wouldn't watch The Guild on TV. So Felicia made her own show, um, and that was 2007. But I think you're right about 2010, because it wasn't until 2009, I believe, that YouTube inaugurated the Partner Program, where people could actually make money from the mm-hmm. ads on their videos. And then, you know, Hulu was 2007, but still but, figuring yeah. itself out. So, yeah, I think, like, it, around the late 2000s is when it really started to be, like, a heavily commercial space. Yeah. And then, you know, in 2012, Netflix blows everyone out of the water by spending so much money on House of Cards. Sure. And now the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> well, or a history that's evolving by the day. Indeed. Yeah. So in terms of the the videos and the, the creators that you're working you're interviewing and the projects that they're making, how do they fund themselves? There's a range of options for funding the online video generally. For scripted content, advertising tends to be less important. Um, because of the way ads are served on online video through algorithms, you really need lots and lots and lots and lots of views in order to make any kind of meaningful amount of money. Um, and you also need to be able to produce fairly consistently so that you can keep making that money. So, you know, if you're talking about, like, talk shows or vlogs or, like, cheap sketch comedy, even things like epic rap battles of history, which is very simple mm-hmm. green screen stuff, mm-hmm. um, advertising ends up being their largest source of income if they get an audience. For the folks I was talking to, crowdfunding was super key. Mm-hmm. People would make sort of a little bit of the show kind of as a concept to see if people were interested. Maybe they'd shoot a teaser and they would uh, raise money through crowdfunding. And a number of shows made 
tens of thousands of dollars, I would say, through crowdfunding. There were a couple, like, Video Game High School that made, I think, over a million. They did a couple crowdfunding campaigns, and one was, like, almost a million, and one was over a million. And I believe that was, at the time, the biggest mm-hmm. crowdfunding campaign before Zach Braff or Spike right. Lee or Veronica <laughs> Mars, one of them. <laughs> On the margins, you had sponsors. So there were some sponsors who wanted a different way to reach audiences other than through ads on TV so they would or like display so they would pay a little bit of money to independent creators to make a show about their brand IKEA did okay. this most famously with easy to assemble um, I think Maybelline had a series at one point that's always kind of happened and sometimes it was through the networks and sometimes it wasn't in rare cases individual shows actually had subscriber bases um, there was a case study of a show called Venice that was a, written and created by two soap opera actors. Uh, and they were like, they had a lesbian storyline on the mainstream TV show, and that storyline got cut. And when they that got cut, they created a web series with new characters because the IP was the sure. networks, but as lesbians, right. yeah. yeah, basically giving fans a little bit more of that story. Okay. And they survived for a, a number of seasons with fans spending like $5 a month for them to keep producing that show. And then subscription has mattered. There are a couple indie networks that are still around that um, started up on YouTube and got audiences and now are on mostly on Vimeo's OTT platform, and they have small subscriber bases. Um, and enough, I think, to fund you know, a couple productions a year and keep that audience going. But generally speaking, the market I'm talking about, the indie TV market, is a very small market compared to the broader you know, multi-billion dollar <laughs> TV market. I was really interested in it because it seemed to me that more so than a space where they were generating revenue, this was a space where new creators were learning the craft of writing and storytelling and audience development in ways that might become beneficial to the networks. And when I was starting the project, I was really skeptical that that would happen. And then Broad City happened, and Issa Rae got her deal, um, and those shows actually went to air. The networks had picked up the series before, but they hadn't really gone to air. In limited cases, there was the Funny or Die thing on HBO... Fred on Nickelodeon. So there were cases, um, but not that many of intentionally scripted comedies and dramas. Um, and that's been happening more and more. Um, so I think it's a, I view it as kind of the indie film to studio TV, right? Like it's indie TV versus studio TV. And it's a, ta- it's a talent pool that the network can source. Well, how would you categorize uh, Louis C.K.'s Horace and Pete? I would say that's a web series. I'm very... I would say doctrinaire about the web series term. Like, if it's a series and it is distributed via internet protocols, it is a web series. So I also include, like, anything Netflix distributes as a web series. Because that's a specific kind... It's regulated differently, right, from broadcast, so I feel like it's important to call it a web series. Louis C.K. is an interesting case in that he also independently funded it. So most of my book focuses on so-called indie TV. Mm -hmm. And that's also an indie TV show, even though the people in it are credentialed, unionized right. actors. and So I'd view it as one of the most ambitious new TV shows that has been created, for sure. I don't work so much on film, and I, I'm fascinated always whenever there's discussions of trying to block out what is indie film versus not. And, and right. I find this is it's a helpful term in television, but also we very quickly get into that same realm of those somewhat amorphous distinctions. But I, I think in, in, in the case of what 
you're working on and NCK as well, I'd, I'd categorize these things the same way. It's things that are not connected to major legacy players. And distributors especially, yeah. right? Because, I mean, indie film's complicated now because the majors have, like, indie arms, right. but they're part of larger conglomerates, so you're like, is that indie? Right. I don't know. <laughs> Depends on how it's financed or produced, but then it's distributed in this different way. And the thing about the internet is I view it as a kind of independent distribution platform. The major networks, ABC... CBS, Fox, HBO are corporate distributors. If you're just uploading your show to YouTube or I don't even know what player you, Louis C.K. used for Horace and he Petey. Has a, he developed his own infrastructure. Right. Because uh, he'd done the special in advance. That's right, indeed. Um, which was huge for him. Right. No, it, to, your, to your earlier description, a very ambitious project. If that and in some ways, Louis C.K.'s project, because he develops his own infrastructure, is right truly independent mm-hmm. in terms of distribution. But even YouTube, which is a corporation, obviously, um, and makes money off of those videos, though less often on the kinds of videos that I'm talking about. The fact is that there is no distribution infrastructure in terms of like executive support or sales teams or anything like that for a lot of these shows. They really are just kind of throwing it up and seeing what happens. Um, so I think for for us, when we talk about indie film, people talk about indie production, and it's usually corporate distributed. Right. For indie TV and web series, for what I'm talking about, it's both indie production and it's independently distributed. Right. Yeah, that's a good distinction. I think, and sometimes as I've tried to make sense of the, the internet distributed video space, but I've sort of acknowledged YouTube as being the separate place because it is effectively open access yeah. in a way that's different from a structure like Netflix or Amazon Video where it's curated, it's it's very much exactly the old system, but using a different technology for actually distributing. And I think the connection there really is like development executives. You know, like Netflix has a ton of development executives, many of whom they've hired from the other networks mm-hmm. in order to source all that programming. Um, and YouTube now has development executives, but they were really late to that game, and they're not necessarily always sourcing from YouTube. You know, they're sourcing from the agencies and from writers who've worked on other major TV shows, Channing Tatum or what have you. It was odd to me because when I was starting the book, I I wasn't really thinking about development as a key part of distribution in television. But of course it is. I mean, we've known that since Todd Gitlin's Inside Primetime. It was a key moment for me when I realized that None of these people had made their shows because a development executive said that it was worthy. Right. You know, they just decided, this story is valuable, it needs to be told, and I think I can make something out of it. I don't care what an executive says. Right. And then the the other side of that executive saying yes is that the money that comes with it um, allows for that kind of creation. And, And another reason that I put YouTube in its own little separate category is because of the minimal money, comparatively, that it spends on content creation. And so our our colleague, David Craig, has conceived of it much more as a social media industry. And I think that industrial practice characterizes it that way very much. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's going to be interesting to see to what degree we see the integration of the social media industry and the TV industry. Mm -hmm. You know, right now, advertisers are putting a lot of money into influencers who, many of whom made their name on YouTube, but some of them also on Twitter or Vine or what have you. You know, I thought YouTube was so central to the influencer industry because of vlogging, but then like all the platforms started getting video and it seemed to not really matter anymore. But that that kind of content is very specific. It's usually kind of topic-based. It's commercial because you have like makeup artists and so they can sell makeup, mm-hmm. right? right? Or like you have 
people who talk about cars, and so car people can a- advertise. And the kinds of stories I was seeing are more difficult to incorporate because the stories themselves are more complex. You have multiple characters, multiple scenes, different themes that arise, and it's not explicitly made for commercial purposes. So, of course, advertisers don't really know what to do with it, mm-hmm. and they don't know how to find them. They're, those teams don't have sales teams, so they don't know how right. to talk to advertisers. It's kind of a big mess. But I, for, I think it was a missed opportunity on YouTube's part for not seeing the value of those creators. You know, like, they could have gotten their development operations started a lot quicker and had Broad City mm-hmm. and had Insecure. And now, you know, they're saying that they missed out on Insecure and it's a shame that Issa Rae isn't on YouTube now. And it's like, well, what are you picking up from YouTube now? You know, you're right. not really and, paying and attention that, to that space. That plant, planting the field, right? That it, that's how it takes a while for these things to grow and come okay. into fruition. Yeah, unless you're Amazon and you want to spend a billion dollars on the Lord of the Rings and then you can just Again, do that. Again, it's, it's just money spent at this point, though, right? It's... Uh, We'll see what happens. Indeed. Uh, so let's see. How are you feeling these days about the space that you study? Are you optimistic? Uh, do you have concerns about sort of shifts in the business? Because that's clearly you know, the, one of the big challenges of researching this space is that the second you put your finger on it, you know, it's moved. It's moved, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I have concerns. I have been mostly pessimistic throughout doing this project, even as I feel like the creators I study do give me hope. But the repeal of net neutrality was a real bummer for me. And not totally unexpected given the way the election went. But I think that that could be, you know, what Tim Wu calls the master switch mm-hmm. for the internet. You know, that really switches off the potential for open access and solidifies power in the mm-hmm. few amongst a few distributors. Even before that, I was seeing that happening. You know, so my the last chapter of my, of my book um, talks about the scaling of the open TV market and the ways in which these bigger players came in and were like, it's all about scale, it's all about big data, lots of user information, or millions of people paying into our network to give them programming. And it was already difficult for indie creators to find their audiences. When Netflix is releasing like two new shows a week, who's going to pay attention to the short form web series that's five to ten minutes long You know, for every episode? It really raises the bar for these indie creators. So I think that was has always just been an existential threat, right? Like, more long-form production, the number of long-form shows, 30-minute, hour-long episode shows, just keeps going up and up and up, and it really marginalizes the short-form market. Um, I think that the focus on big data on the part of YouTube especially, and to a lesser extent, the kind of ad-supported players like Hulu and whatnot, who aren't really... That's not really their rhetoric. Um, But YouTube's definitely was, and Facebook will be as well, now that they're getting into TV. You know, really makes it difficult for, you know, smaller stories to get valued. I think about Amazon canceling all their kind of alternative, quirky comedies, um, and then going for The Lord of the Rings, you know? It just seems like, because there's so so much competition, all the big players are just spending buckets and buckets of money to get people's attention. And that's super concerning as well. So... I'm kind of pessimistic. I'm glad I wrote this book because I feel like this moment needed to be captured. Right. Much in the way that um, Susan Douglas captured the early radio market, though not when it was happening, obviously, because right. it was in the early <laughs> 1900s. So I was like, when I saw this happening, I was reading Susan Douglas's work, and I was just like, someone needs to document this kind of moment when the internet was free and open, right. because 20 years from now, it might not. And given U.S. trends, we're very friendly to conglomeration. Probably not. Right. No, it's it's interesting that you bring up net neutrality because I I came to net neutrality as well, sort of out of an interest in television and sort of 
not necessarily in the YouTube space, but sort of it becoming very clear how it looked like internet distribution was creating, you know, certainly not the range of content that you were finding in terms of independent creators, but that at least the subscription revenue model in particular was opening up the boundaries of storytelling in interesting ways and um, the way that services such as Netflix was able to achieve scale but do it not with mass product because of nonlinear distribution and being able to serve different niches at, at the same time. Absolutely. Um, and realizing how imperative it was to maintain net neutrality or else you know, sort of all of those things, all of those structures that frustrate users and subscribers with cable systems were going to very quickly be reproduced on the internet in terms of these being giant deals between giant distribution, uh, in this case, the, the internet service providers right. instead of cable companies, except they're the same ones. It's, it's been stunning the way in which the elimination of net neutrality is everything they could have dreamed and more, right? Because in the cable environment, they had to pay people for the content. Right. Um, not only are they the monopoly providers, but they're in a position to be paid to distribute the content and be paid from subscribers receiving the content. Uh, so, yeah. It's a morass. No, I keep hoping that sanity prevails. But, um. Me too, and I, I still have hope for that. I think there are still some um, modern Democrats, Republicans, who understand that their consumers don't want to pay more to watch the TV they want to watch. And we already pay so much for the internet and phones and cable. Like, this is a consumer sort of pocketbook issue Mm -hmm. that maybe if they can sell it right and if the advocacy groups can sell it right, they'll, like, overturn that rule. But, you know, video was key to the whole net neutrality debate. It was all about video because it takes up so much data. And, like, will Netflix do make all of those shows if, like, you're paying for every gigabyte you watch in 4K? Like, probably not. Or maybe it's just, like, they can't compete with AT&T because they'll own HBO. Hopefully not. But they're trying, and maybe, you know, they won't count HBO against you, so right. you can watch all the HBO you want. But Netflix will count against you. Yeah. I mean, we don't really know what's coming, I feel. I don't know. Well, I feel like, in some ways, what, this is probably very similar to how the... The privacy advocates have felt for the last decade or so, like that ability to see this is what's going to happen. And yet, and you say it again and again, and nobody hears you until like you have to get so far as you have the crisis, the utter meltdown. And then you see, I told you. They're doing that right now. Exactly. Well, and today, as we speak with Zuckerberg on the Hill, it does seem like there's energy for regulating privacy because of the crisis. I don't know what the crisis for TV looks like. Right. I think it's convincing because we do have these models of what failed media marketplaces look like, right? You can talk to anyone who has subscribed to cable in the last decade. You know, why are you frustrated? Because you have to subscribe to this giant bundle. You have no choice. You have no, there's no competition. So you can't decide what's in your bundle and you have no alternative to go anywhere else. So at least we have a, an experience with that. I think it's a matter of convincing the population that we are heading right back to that. Um, and perhaps... 
it will be experienced in a heightened way because I think people recognize internet access as, as something that is connected to their leisure and their entertainment, but also increasingly just everyday function of life um, and professionally as well. Who knows what will come next? I mean, we could sp- probably spend the next 30 minutes <laughs> speculating about all the things that could happen. Um, and it could be messier because of the ways companies are buying other companies mm-hmm. And, you know, like Netflix could be at a disadvantage because it's not owned by an ISP, which is right. ridiculous to think about. My, 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 my suspicion is that the crisis will be brought on by a larger kind of event, like an economic collapse, yeah. um, where people just have less money. And so, like, spending more for Internet access just becomes, like, the last straw. I haven't followed the open platform space as closely. Can you talk, I don't know... How is Vimeo doing? Is it, is it an environment in which there are multiple platforms, or is this really a space in which YouTube you know, dominates, will continue to dominate? It seems as though YouTube is dominating and will continue to dominate. <laughs> At least in the U.S. And At least in elsewhere. the U.S., okay. yes. Um, because um, the other platforms are now reliant on social media platforms in order to get traffic, okay. right? So, like, Vimeo... Is it's always been a different kind of platform because it's not totally ad supported. It's mm-hmm. more of a filmmaker services platform. Um, you know, they have back end stuff where like if you're in post production for something, you can like have a little review page on Vimeo and like the director can make notes for the editor. You know, like that's the kind of things that Vimeo does. But I think that Vimeo was super worried about the net neutrality dis- decision, and I know they lobbied the FCC to not do that because mm-hmm. they're part of a larger conglomerate, but they're a small part of that conglomerate because they're not a big revenue ger- generator. Like, I believe, I think College Humor is still owned by ISC as well. And so I think they were like, you know, we're going to get axed in or, this environment if it's too costly for people to get our videos. Yeah. No, um, that's, I think, the the quietness of Google or YouTube or Netflix. You know, the other side, like, yes, they're looking at probably having to pay paid prioritization if net neutrality goes away. But also that effectively throws up those barriers to entry and ensures, you know, they're they're going to be the only game in town because their pockets are deep enough now to pay that paid prioritization, but no one can come in then. Yeah, indeed. Um, I'm really worried about it because YouTube is ad-supported and is, you know, known for censoring videos, just like Facebook's been known for mm-hmm. censoring as well. And, you know, some censoring I agree with and some I don't. The great thing about Vimeo was that they would just let anything stay up there, basically, as long as it didn't like violate copyright explicitly. And so I think that is actually a consequence of free speech. I mean, for my OTV project, we upload to Vimeo for that very reason, because we're representing marginalized communities. We work with experimental artists who do really avant-garde work. And I think some of our videos would get taken down on YouTube. Um, that's a problem. You know, there has to be spaces for art and experimentation online. It's part of our culture. Um, and that's not what people go to YouTube for. <laughs> um, you know, I think YouTube will be fine because it is social media driven as well as video driven. I think Facebook will be fine for the same reason. But I think everyone else, like Funny or Die, just cut a big part of their content development staff because their videos just weren't circulating on Facebook because Facebook didn't want you to watch any video that wasn't Facebook, you know? You know, net neutrality can't solve that issue, but at least it doesn't increase the cost of running Funny or Die such that it really becomes not possible for them to even exist, you know? Yeah, I've been wondering, I'm a big fan of of Tim Wu and the separations principle, and and been wondering, I think, if there's 
a corollary or a parallel or something that's like um, technology neutrality or something like that in the way in which the advantage of having these different points of the system, I mean, I think Apple is probably the the key point there, and I still haven't figured out why they're spending a billion dollar on video. Maybe you have an idea. I do have an idea. Oh, well, <laughs> let's, just, let's just talk about that. My, my hunch is that Apple wants to do for TV what they did with the iPod, right, and design away our complicated TV system, because people yeah. are subscribing to all these different mm-hmm. services, they're getting video in all different kinds of ways, and there really isn't a good platform for integrating all of that stuff, and especially letting you know like what's new on different platforms, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I have Roku, mm-hmm. and so like Roku will, you can take out an ad on Roku if like there's a new season of your show, and that'll come up, and that'll change out every couple of days, or every couple hours, or whatever, but my hunch is that Apple TV will become a kind of cable box that will just streamline all of the different services in a super easy, elegant way, such that they won't even have to spend $8 billion a year like Netflix is. They can just spend $1 to $2 billion with a couple key shows because you're going to use your Apple TV and subscribe to whatever service they offer because the platform and the software is so good. Right, yeah. that you're going to access Netflix through Apple TV. You're going to access Amazon through Apple TV, though Amazon might combat and pull off. Right, Apple. well, see, that's, that's that space of, right. of, of needing that technology neutrality. neutrality absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I stream some through an Apple TV. It's not the most recent version mm-hmm. of the, the technology, but for the longest time until um, this December, Amazon was not an app available. Um, and as a result, I watched next to no Amazon video. Um, I'd watched on my iPad. I even knew how to like throw it onto my big TV, living room TV. But it was just like the, the friction of it. It was just this extra step. It was or like having to hook up your HDMI port. You're just like, it, I have to take out my laptop. It, oh my God. <laughs> I know how ridiculous it sounds, but in practice, it was too difficult. And then all of a sudden, the Apple TV turns on one day and there's the Amazon Prime app. And it's like, Three weeks later, I've watched nothing but Amazon. And so, yeah. so there's such power there. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know, do we know much about why did Amazon, like, they have the prime position on that Apple TV interface. You okay. know, like, how, does the, how did that get decided? Right. And so does Apple have the ability to keep people off of Apple TV? You know, so, like, in many or ways. Or submerge them in, like, the lower part of things. Right. Yeah. And so we're reinstating all of the, like, this is, like, are you channel two or are you channel 65? We have all of this history. Right. Um, it, the fact that the technology is a little different doesn't matter. We know what's going to happen. We do, and I don't think we'll ever have a completely neutral environment with either those TV interfaces or, you know, on the other side with algorithms, right, which are just inherently discriminatory. That's their job, is to discriminate between content. Um, How do you regulate an algorithm? Scholars are trying to figure this out, but I haven't heard any super clear solutions to that problem. Indeed. Uh, It's (laughs) whole new topics. And here we are, we're talking about many things that are not exactly about your book. Um, But I wanted to come back and have you talk a little bit about OTV and how Mm -hmm. that's different than the book and open TV. Yeah, OTV really sprung out of me realizing that this book was about development and the need to maybe come up with different kinds of development projects to assist the market um, and assist artists at the same time. 
the project is organized around this concept of research and development. And I still, I'm still working on the argument for the second book, but it's something about the need for sort of better R&D in different markets, particularly television. And I'm also thinking about like the art world as well, because we distribute video art and experimental film. And in terms of research development, development is about developing artists and developing community. The project is a lot of me meeting with Chicago artists, everyone's in Chicago, and asking them, you know, what's the story you want to tell? How do you want to tell it? And assisting them as best I can, which is difficult on tenure track, so it's, <laughs> it's not the best boutique service. Um, but I try to help as much as I can, help them get those videos done, give them some perspective on the media business and the different paths to their careers, and then releasing their work online with the hope that if we give this sort of hub where there's all this good, diverse content, um, the bigger distributors will come and look at it and say, oh, that's actually really well written. Maybe I should have a meeting with that writer, right? Or maybe agents will do that as well and get people repped and get them into the system in a more seamless way than just like one waiting for something to go viral on YouTube and having it get sent around Hollywood, you know, because they were missing all this great stuff. One of the things you talk about in in the book is the the way in which at first, or for the longest time, we thought distribution was the whole problem, right? And you open up distribution, it'll be okay. But once you open up distribution, then all of a sudden you realize discovery becomes the problem. And so uh, something like that centralized node could be really valuable. There's certainly been a lot of discourse about agents, you know, now looking on YouTube, but, you know, that's, that's now a needle in a haystack. It really is on YouTube, and YouTube's not helping on the curatorial <laughs> side with that. So I find that there really is demand for a platform like this, M- much more than I thought there was. I thought it would take me five years to get the attention of any major network, mm-hmm. and then last year we released this show called Brown Girls that spread widely and made us known in the industry, and you know, later that year I was meeting with, like I don't know, a dozen networks, and they're just asking, like, What's going on in Chicago? They have no idea. I mean, that was the other thing I learned. The agencies are so powerful in TV right now, and yet they don't have anyone on the ground in Chicago. Um, And there are a number of Chicago playwrights, especially, that do end up making it to TV. I I think Tanya Siracho has an overall deal at Stars right now. She's a Chicago playwright. There's a writer-director team, their name escapes me, that just sold a show to CBS. The industry sort of knows that there's, like, some talent in Chicago, (laughs) but they're like, I don't really know, like... They have to get discovered by the agencies first, right? Mm-hmm. I do find um, that there is demand for these kinds of projects, and I just hope I'm not the only one because mm-hmm. I can't do it. Um, the networks have some things themselves, like they have digital studios and you know, sort of incubators, and then the festivals also have programs uh-huh. as right. well. So there's other people working on other aspects of this discovery issue. Uh-huh. Um, you know, like if you can make it into Sundance or South by, the, South by Southwest or Tribeca or New York Television Festival, you can get some meetings Mm -hmm. out of that though a lot of those people are already repped and have already had meetings the digital studios of the networks I think it's because it's a smaller part of the company they don't necessarily source a lot from that talent at least not yet it seems to Mm -hmm. me though I can't quite tell um, from the outside because it looks like they're not picking up those shows but they might be picking up people behind the scenes right and staffing bringing their talent bringing that talent in yeah so I think it's definitely serving function and and sort of tracking all of that and how that happens is the research side and thinking about you know what is the function of an independent distribution or independent development project in this wide open market where there's so many shows getting made Mm -hmm. and you know I basically debuted the platform at the kind of height of this diversity bubble 
I so, and I sort of got a sense that that was going to happen after Scandal and Empire, and then right. once Insecure went on, I was like, okay, there's clearly demand for these kinds of alternative stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a little worried that now it's going to go the other way with Roseanne and the Heartland strategy and all that stuff. But there's so much TV being made, so probably not. But maybe. You never know. We're in a really <laughs> weird position in the market right now. Well, I mean, I think that concern about a bubble extends everywhere, right? It's that peak TV discourse and the recognition that so much is being produced without knowing what are the second market, third market, how much revenue are things going to continue to bring in. And until I think the industry knows, like, oh, we can't count on... X million international or X yeah. million from Bright's. The, the whole business is sort of waiting to or trying to feel its way into this new norm. Yeah, trying to find that stabilization point where it's like you can predict what's going to happen year to year, but there's too much changing on the technology side and too many new distributors. And so, you know, we're kind of this little dot in Chicago, <laughs> kind of with all this swirling around us. Um, but I actually find that's a really useful position. It's kind of the position I've always had as a scholar, sort of being way out on the margins and seeing (laughs) the view from like there because I think that view gives us a different perspective on what's happening on the industry. I feel the same way. I describe it often as, you know, like obviously the people who are in the business know so much more, see so much more, but so much of their lives is putting out the thing that just caught on fire or the thing that has to happen by Friday. And they see in such depth uh, everything that their piece is. They don't see the other piece of the person on the floor above them and you know while I don't get much of the detail can kind of get the the view from 30,000 feet of, of how all of these oh you change you know Netflix changes how it writes deals with producers um, because they want to own rights for 10 years globally okay so that's going to mean that this is going to happen and it's all connected it is all connected for sure one of the things that's been interesting to me is looking at like what is the market for short form which most people in the industry don't necessarily have a good sense of. Um, And it's very nascent, but there are a couple corporate distributors that are interested in making short-form content, almost always explicitly as a tool to get a long-form deal (laughs) in place. You know, so, like, they'll make a short-form series. I think Super Deluxe did this with um, Joanne the Scammer, who was an Instagram star, a very weird personality that it's really hard to even describe right now, but they made a scripted series about her, about this character that he created on Instagram, and then, like, from that, use that as a kind of proof of concept to then shop it around to bigger networks. Um, So we get some of those folks, like, really interested in artists, and that's really interesting. I've been able to, on one or two occasions get interest from one of them and actually, like, see what a contract looks like and, like, what are the Ah, kinds of things that they're asking for in terms of ownership and um, rights of future uh, claims to future sales, exploitation Mm -hmm. of future sales. So that's been super informative. And seeing how this little market that I was studying 10 years ago (laughs) has developed in something where there's actually a little bit of money in it is, like, very fascinating. And to see if that all crumbles, how and why, will also be super fascinating. That is the nature of it, right? Uh, the story w- is going to change tomorrow. Which is why it's great to study what we study, right? It's like the rules are always changing, you know, the environment is always changing, and you're just trying to keep up um, and look to history for guidance, right? right? No, I think that's that's really the helpful piece. And I think being in a space where you can step back and say, okay, so what do we learn from this? Or, you know, like we had this moment of this newness. How is it like this other thing that had this moment of newness, right? 
I see all the the chatter now about VR and AR. Oh, and sort yes. of like, do I have it in me to go <laughs> another round? Uh, <laughs> I have that same feeling. Just like <laughs> it is very exasperating, like putting my hand to my forehead, like. <laughs> Oh, am I too old for this? Like, I don't know. Can I, I, <laughs> can I get out of here before this becomes a thing? <laughs> I really, I, I, I struggle with VR. I really do. I think it's going to be something really different than what we think. Uh, that's, or it's going to be many different things. Um, in the way Facebook managed to find something we didn't know that we need, and you know that's some that people really wanted. And area I don't mean. Russian bots and ads and all that, right? <laughs> but this ability to connect, right? I, I'm really curious to see who figures out there's got to be a social play to VR, and everybody's focus right. is on scripted and theatrical and gaming, but... Or even documentary. Yeah, and, and the educational opportunities, and those blow my mind. So it'll probably be many different things, but... I'm pretty sure it's not going to kill any of our industries. I don't think it's going <laughs> to get rid of the comedy series anytime yeah. soon. Like, if you can... Through, I, if you can figure out how to tell an episodic story through VR, you deserve all the Emmys, I would say. <laughs> I just don't... I cannot see how it's possible, but I'm willing to be proven wrong, you know? Well, that's probably a good place to wrap that up. We'll have to have you back, uh, should virtual reality ever <laughs> come into everyday life, and uh, if anyone does figure out how to make an episodic comedy and VR. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about our show, go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want new episodes in your feed as soon as they're available, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. AJ Christian's Twitter is Prof AJ Christian, P-R-O-F-A-J-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. Alex is at Alex Itner, A-L-E-X-I-N-T-N-E-R. And you can find me at Dr. TV Lots. That's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon.